2: With your hosts,
1: Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! Welcome to Rex Factory, viewing all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. And this week, mad old King George Third. Well indeed, you've already got straight into one of the uh, most known facts.
2: Well, I'll tell you straight George away why, because all of my knowledge here is from Nigel Hawthorne.
1: And the madness of King Even George. King, exactly, yeah. Alan yeah. Bennett play and film turns out there's quite a lot more to King George than just being a bit mad. Right. And for that reason, we've taken the unprecedented step of oh. splitting the episode in two.
2: Mm.
1: So usually what we do is we do the first half of the podcast where we go over the biography of the king so we get a sense of the stuff that happens in his reign yep. from birth to death. Then we review them by the factors, so how good they are in battle, their scandal, whether you'd want to be a subject, how yeah. long they rule all for, how many legitimate children they have. And then decide if they've got the Rex Factor. Yeah. But because there's so much to do with George III, other than him being mad, we thought we'd never be able to fit that all into one episode. Yeah. So what we've done is, this episode is going to be the biography, or sort of in many ways the events right. of the Reign, to yeah. give the background to understand all the stuff that's going on. So we won't actually give him any scores this week. Next episode, we will then score him. Yes. Uh, before we answer that, we've had uh, some messages, as usual. Um, this is from uh, Twitter, at GoGetMilk, or uh, Kaja Joukowska. Uh She said, I like George II much more now. He seems like a fun chap, but no mention of Hampton Court. He was the last to use it, after all. You never mentioned that it was never used after Queen Caroline's death. Quite a romantic story, I think. That is. I didn't know that. And also I want to say, good luck to all of you who've been doing GCSEs and A-levels, because we've had a few messages from people that have been using us as a revision aid.
2: Yeah. Well they mostly got the you to think though. But um yeah, no, good luck. Good luck. I mean I I dread to think what some of the <laughs> stuff you might end up writing down. <laughs> yeah. William William and Mary there, there was no penguins.
1: It weren't actually penguins. Yeah, we, we hope it's not too late before uh, mm. everyone writes that. Anyway, on to George the Third. Yeah. He is born in seventeen thirty eight. He's the son of Prince Frederick. Because if you recall, George II's oldest son actually died before George II, so it skipped a generation. So son of Prince Frederick and his wife Augusta of Saxe, Gotha. And he becomes king in 1760 when he's 22 years old.
2: Which is quite young, we've had quite old ones recently. It is,
1: because we skipped that generation we've been able to get to a younger age at starting. And his relationship to Elizabeth II, he is the third great-grandfather. That's that's brilliant. That's really close. They practically met each other. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. In terms of his appearance, um, on his succession, Horace Walpole said that his person is tall and full of dignity, his countenance florid and obliging.
2: I'm not sure I understand any of that sentence. I'm not sure
1: either, but apparently he wasn't particularly handsome, but a decent German looks with the sort of prominent Hanoverian eyes and sort of fair-skinned. Okay. Fair head.
2: Prominent eyes?
1: They had quite bulging eyes, the oh, Hanoverians. Right. Okay. Poor, poor blokes. <laughs> <laughs> not in a painful way, just... Right. <laughs> And um, So in his early years um, He became the Prince of Wales Of course when his father died Yeah um, His father had had a bad relationship With his father So George II and Frederick Hadn't got on very yeah, well Like yeah. all
2: yeah, Hanoverian yeah. fathers
1: yeah. and sons And Frederick died in 1751 When George III was only 13 years old And in fact George III himself was born two months premature It wasn't thought that he would actually survive In terms of his education He's a bit of a slow starter Not thought to be very intelligent But he is the first monarch to study science systematically Right, okay and his character, he was very hard-working, self-disciplined, sought to run a more reputable court than his Hanoverian oh, and, indeed, Stuart predecessors. A shame. Indeed. And many people said that he was middle-aged as a young man and then just stayed that way throughout the rest of his life. <laughs> right. So yeah. he sort of yeah. found his me? niche yeah. very early on. Indeed, he himself said, My mind is not of a nature to be guided by the object of obtaining a little applause. Rectitude of conduct is my sole aim.
2: Oh, this doesn't look like a scandal.
1: His biggest influence in his early years was a man called John Stuart, or as he later became Lord Bute. He was a good friend of Frederick and close to George's mother, Augusta. Indeed, there were rumours that the two were having an affair.
2: Always with the rumours, though. Always
1: rumours. Probably quite unlikely. Yeah. He was quite a moral man. Right. So he probably didn't. But he was very influential, becomes something of a father figure to George, set up Court at at a Leicester House in rivalry to George II, and indeed Bute and Augusta kept George away from George II, George III away from George II, because George II, yeah. after Frederick died, thought, oh, well, I'll have my heir, and I can bring him up to be a good king like me." Yeah. But Bute and Augusta thought, "No, none of that. His immoral, corrupt court were keeping him away from George II, and were going to have him." grow up to be the king we want him to be.
2: But this, again, is a complete reflection of George I and George II having these rival courts. Yeah. Oh, is this, this, a Hanoverian thing, isn't it? Not it is. Not like in the previous generation.
1: But, yeah, so very influential, Lord Bute. Stopped George marrying a beautiful young woman called Sarah Lennox, whom he fell for in his younger years, but right. was told that she wasn't of sufficient standing so. for a future king of England. And also they imbued this ideal of the patriot king, Mm. This was based on a pamphlet in 1749 by Bolingbroke, who's one of the ministers under Queen yeah. Anne. And this was aiming to have the king ruled above faction, above the party p- politics. Because they're have they properly developed now. The Whigs and the Tories are very much there now. There is this division. Yeah. Previous, we've had a Whig sort of hegemony for many years. The Whigs have mm. been completely dominant. Bute and George want to end this and just have royal rule with more power, but in a sort of... Benevolent. So they're seeking more royal power? Because it's been diminishing for the last few reigns. Oh, right, so
2: not just sitting above the party politics and being removed from it all, but actually getting involved to making sure
1: that the best interests of the country are secured because they think party politics is factional and thus isn't in the national interest. Right. So Patriot King stands above it all.
2: Like a sort of benevolent dictator?
1: Yes, although they would not have used that word. No, no. But their opponents probably would have done. Right. He comes to the throne, as we said, in 1760, and he's the first monarch to come to the throne unmarried since Charles II, exactly 100 years previously. Really? Did he have
2: a little empty seat next to him? It is. Quite sad, really. (laughs) Yes. Poor
1: bloke. Um, So they needed to get him a bride as soon as possible. They did, yeah. Bute insisted on a foreign, preferably German bride, so someone of good and noble stock. Uh, George wanted a wife whose focus was on disposition and childbearing. Right. Nothing more than that. Because remember, Caroline was a very intelligent woman. Yeah. Less um, of that, just more like, He doesn't want any of that. Um, he excluded one of his cousins, apparently, for being interested in philosophy.
2: For, not, not for, not being, for his being his cousin. cousin. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, okay. Put the books away, love. <laughs> but for being interested okay. in philosophy. Dear. And so he marries a uh, 17-year-old German Lutheran princess, Charlotte of mecklenburg strelitz Hmm. Um, she had a slight figure, a bit of a large mouth, light brown hair, fairly plain, but handsome enough. Yeah. So she gets escorted over uh, by Nelson in this convoy of British. By Nelson? Warships. Yeah, by wow, Nelson cool. and all these warships. Meets George, and then a few hours later they get married.
2: That's so awkward. Very awkward. Oh, goodness me, imagine.
1: However, against the odds, they had a fairly happy relationship for most of the reign and uh, nicknamed each other Mr. and Mrs. King. That's so sweet That's lovely After they got married There was then the coronation So the giant coronation It was organised by a man Called Lord Effingham But unfortunately He didn't do a very good job He forgot the Sword of State, which delayed the procession procession for quite a while while someone went to find it or get a replacement sword. (laughs) And it was incredibly under-rehearsed. There were lots of long pauses while no one knew who was meant to do something next. Oh, that's
2: brilliant. brilliant. It must have seemed really solemn and poignant. (laughs) But actually someone's going,
1: oh, God! (laughs) Even better than that, there was a man, Lord Talbot, who was meant to come in on a horse and do his impressive thing and greet the king and queen. Uh, Come find a horse. And now he got a horse Etiquette demanded however That you never turn your back on royalty Yeah So he spent hours and hours Training the horse to walk backwards So that he wouldn't have to greet them And then turn away from them Oh god and it was very successful, so successful, in fact, that when he was meant to come in, the horse <laughs> refused to go forward. So he had to reverse in, in to see them and thus greeted royalty rump with first. A,
2: with a horse's bum. Oh, that's spectacular.
1: Apparently one observer said that it was a terrible indecorum.
2: He must have been just as he passed people walking <laughs> back because they're looking going, what are you doing? He's going, I'm so sorry. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> hello. Oh. hello. <laughs> Oh, why isn't that more well known? That's amazing.
1: <laughs> George III wasn't very pleased about all of this, and when he complained to Effingham that it had all gone rather uh, wrong, Effingham responded, It is true, sir, that there has been some neglect, but I've taken care that the next coronation shall be regulated in the exactest manner That's possible. Brilliant.
2: So when you're dead, we'll sort out. Of-
1: <laughs> Get it more right next time.
2: Yeah. Uh, first
1: things first, the end of the Seven Years' War.
2: Is that still going?
1: It is still going. we recall that this uh, was conflict between, essentially, England and France. Lots of other nations, but England and France are the main ones. Fighting since 1757, but in 1759 we'd had that Annus Mirabilis, where Britain won all those different territories, like Canada and all sorts of other things, and established naval supremacy. But the public are starting to get a bit fed up with the war. Mm. What's more, national debt has doubled to about £140 As a result of the war, and interest payments are something like £4 million a year. So, about half of the tax revenues going there. So, it's very expensive. George's accession speech, he was initially uh, referred to it as the Bloody War
2: Um,
1: in terms of its um, cost of human life. (laughs) Uh, But Pitt the Elder, the, well, actually not the Prime Minister, but the man in charge of the war, um, wasn't too happy about this. So, when it was published, it was changed to the Expensive but Just and Necessary War.
2: Wow, dodgy dossier moment.
1: Indeed. And George and Bute felt that Pitt and the actual Prime Minister, Newcastle, had too much power.
2: Yeah.
1: And they were both in favour of the war, Pitt and Newcastle. So we've got a bit of a conflict between George, who wants the war to end, Pitt, who wants it to continue. So there's a bit of a conflict of interest. 1761, France and Spain form an alliance. Oh, no. And Pitt thinks that what we should do is have a preemptive strike on the New World colonies of Spain. Right. I said a bits of North and South right. America. Cabinet, George and Bute, all a bit horrified about this and the amount of cost and everything that this would do. On
2: top of this current Seven Years' War...
1: We're now going to invade right. Spanish territories all over the world. So, they say no, Pitt resigns in 1761. And 1762, a year later, Newcastle resigns as well. Because George has said no. Because he said no, and it's clear that they don't have the support yeah. of, right. of the king. So, in 1763, the war comes to an end with the Treaty of Paris... Britain takes Canada and Louisiana from France and also Florida from Spain. Uh, they also get Granada, Dominica and Tobago in the Caribbean and maintain their dominance in the African slave trade and get back Menorca, which they'd lost at the start of the war.
2: Mm. But um, so, this, so the king at this point has still got a lot of power in that he can effectively bring wars to an end.
1: Well, pretty much, yeah. I mean, I mean, he can change play. his ministers, that's the thing. He's the one yeah. that actually chooses the ministers. Even though there are elections, right. king still appoints.
2: Right. I mean, that's technically still true today, but they're actually using yeah. that power. Yeah. Yeah.
1: OK. However, 1760s, there's a bit of a power vacuum and he struggles to get stable government. Initially, Bute, inevitably, mm. is the man who's put in there as prime minister. But he's very unpopular among both MPs and the public.
2: Yeah. Upstart. Who's this fella?
1: Exactly. Um, a proposed side attacks led to riots in the West Country.
2: Brilliant. <laughs> That's fantastic.
1: And Bute resigned in 1763. Yeah. So George is now trying to find somebody that can form a strong government, but is not party political.
2: Yeah.
1: And it proves troublesome. First up is George Grenville from 1763 to 65. He has a bit of a mayor when he prosecutes a man called John Wilkes, um, who has a publication called North Britain in which he attacks the government and Bute and George. So Grenville tried to arrest him for libel and all sorts of things, but it backfires. Wilkes becomes a public hero. So that doesn't go very well, and George doesn't like him very much either. He complained at one stage, when he has wearied me for two hours, he looks at his watch to see if he may not tire me for an hour more. Grenville goes, Mm -hmm. and he's replaced by Charles Wentworth Watson, or Rockingham he's known he's there 1765 to 66 George had wanted Pitt the Elder to come back but Pitt had said no mm. so this guy Rockingham comes in but dissent in cabinet meant that his administration was very short lived uh, next up Pitt does return hey. 1766 to 68 unfortunately right at the start he loses public support by making himself the Earl of Chatham
2: why Why would that lose it because it, it, he had been it, it, seen, seen as a
1: man out. of the people in the House of Commons right. all these sorts of things but yeah. then he gives himself a peerage okay. Right. So he loses a bit of public support. It's a very diverse government, which George likes, mm. but it's also very divided as a result. Mm. What's more, Pitt's health is really failing by this stage. And he doesn't really have a lot of sort of connection to what's going on. He's not really there mm. to make the decisions. Okay. So again, it's not a very strong government. So he resigns and is replaced by August Fitzroy, or Grafton, who's there from 1768 to 70. He fails to get Britain involved when France invades Corsica.
2: They've something still. Oh, no, I'm thinking of Sardinia. Yeah, carry
1: mm-hmm. on. <laughs> and people aren't very happy about this. There uh, are things called the Junius letters, which again are these anonymous publications that come out criticising him and the government. So he resigns. Oh my! How? What year? What
2: period are we talking here? From so we've gone time. from
1: 1763 to 1770. That's the one, two, three, four, fifth. Prime Minister Holmes. in seven years
2: and this
1: isn't is this this is all down to him sticking his oar in well it's not that George is sacking everybody rather that he just isn't able to
2: find the right people find
1: someone that can just actually hold the country no one, together
2: no but, one will do it because of his personality well
1: then? it's because of his meddling really mm. at the start with but and all these things he isn't able to
2: yeah okay let
1: Vince take its course but in 1770 he finds his man yes Lord North Right. He's able to form an administration the last no, can't get that lasts from
2: 1770
1: until 1782. Not one. Ma- very long reign. Or government, rather. Uh, proved able to manage the government, reintegrated Tories into the government as well. So he got Whigs and Tories. He's happy that. All in the same that. cabinet in fact, probably, equivalent? Yeah, it's probably mainly Tories. In fact, by this stage, the Whigs right. aren't so in favour. Avoids domestic crises and has a very good personal relationship with George III. Right. So that's all good. Okay, brilliant. Except that Lord North is often seen as a fool chosen by a fool, and by many people, the worst prime minister. Ever? Definitely on the list. Really? And that's because he's also known as the man who lost America.
2: Ah, now we've got a lot of American listeners...
1: We do. ...who are just chomping at the bit to
2: give George III a bit of a slating. Um... For obvious reasons, I suppose. Well, for
1: reasons that we are about to go into, yeah. because America at this stage becomes the United States of America.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we're now at 1770.
1: Yep, and this is how it all happens. We'll go back a little bit in time, actually. A bit of background for America and why this all kicks off. America at this stage is 13 British colonies, sort of on the eastern seaboard from Maine to Georgia, roughly about 2 million people. Right. They are so, that it's, you know, big... Mm. vast tracts of land in the seven years war in which America North America was one of the various theatres yeah where it was all yeah. taking place prior to the war it had cost Britain about £75,000 a year to maintain America after the war it's about £350,000
2: why?
1: well because they've had to do all this fighting because France had territories in America said, as well forts building
2: and all shares, this sort of yeah. stuff
1: and Britain uh, felt that America should be paying more mm in terms of contributing more to their own upkeep yeah. and defence. And they had rich places like Boston, New York and Philadelphia. And there was a sense that they hadn't contributed as much as they might have done in yeah. the Seven Years' War in Britain. So Britain thinks George III, Westminster are sovereign. It's their colony. They've got a right to tax their own colonies. And they want to have greater centralised control over America and a bit more of a military presence.
2: What's the equivalent in another territory? Would they have similar... Similar amount of power in Westminster's... It's probably... This
1: is the period at which we're starting to get the idea of a centralised empire. Right. It hasn't really happened yet. Okay. So America's, in a way, the the testing ground. Yeah. And it affects how Britain chooses to have its relationship um, in the future. Right, Okay. But they haven't really got a central British empire as such yet, Mm. Mm. even though we've got lots of territories. So that's what Britain thinks. More control, more tax, all this sort of thing. The American view is rather different. They think they've... Indeed, they have been working very hard for a good long while to establish these colonies, get them all set up, enjoy decades with very limited interference whatsoever. And France has been defeated, so they think, well, there's no need for Britain to be here and have lots of troops stationed.
2: Can't argue with that. That's a good point.
1: So why do we have to tax us when there are no more French? Is it because basically with the Seven Years' War cost us a lot of money, we need more money? It did cost a lot of money. <laughs> we do need more money. So in 1765 there was the introduction of the stamp tax. Mm-hmm. So the motivation was to tap into American wealth. Stamp duty on property, legal documents, newspapers, things like this. And expected to yield about 60,000 pounds a year or so. But so it, you know, it passed through common house of commons very easily. Largely empty chamber. No one thought very much about it. Just tax them. It's no problem. Just tax them. Until it goes to America and there's outrage.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Not happy about it at all. Protests, colonial assemblies argue that they should have no taxation without representation.
2: Yeah, that that echoes um, to this day, doesn't it? People mm. are, people still quote that. Because they day. have
1: no MPs or anyone yeah. representing them in America. Um, had a trade boycott, organised violence against officials, so it really kicks off.
2: Yeah.
1: Grenville resigns, Rockingham came in and repealed the tax. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, but he still asserted that Westminster had the right to pass laws for its colonies in all cases whatsoever. Um, George III is, is, is involved in this. He is concerned about all of this. He says himself at this time that he was grieved at the accounts from America. Where this spirit will end is not to be said. It is undoubtedly the most serious matter that ever came before Parliament. It requires more deliberation, candour and temper than I fear it will meet with.
2: Well, that's that's sensible. That's He's right.
1: Sensible, but at the same time... He's clearly got very strong views on all of this.
2: Oh, in which way it should go. Yes. But,
1: yeah. In 1767, we have the Townsend Acts. Mm. These are introduced by a man, Charles Townsend, who's the grandson of Turnip Townsend. Oh, yeah, Who yeah. was the ally and then rival of Robert Walpole. Um, these acts impose new import duties on various goods, like pa- uh, paper, glass, paint, lead, and tea. Again, violent demonstrations in America. Tr- uh, British had to dispatch troops to restore the peace because right. it's getting so bad. At 1769, all the colonies except for New Hampshire made non-importation agreements. Either wouldn't be importing mm. British goods. in so um, 1769, after Townsend mm. has died and has no idea of all the stuff that he's <laughs> kicked off, Cabinet voted to abolish all of the duties except for tea.
2: Uh, which we know is a problem. But before we get on to that, mm. the, way, the way you've been phrasing it uh-huh. is, so these places kicked off, and the British had to suppress them. Is there a definite um, distinction there? Or is it not the British suppressing the British? There's still Is there a strong American identity here?
1: There's not... That's a, a big question which could probably fill the whole podcast. Yeah. And apologies to American listeners if I simplify in a slightly inaccurate way, I'd say that there isn't a single American identity at this stage because the colonies have a lot of differences between each other. Because they
2: weren't unified. They were independent colonies. They but weren't they, viewed as... Yeah,
1: but they do have identities as colonies that are separate from people who just happen to have come over from Britain. These people have been there for over 100 years.
2: Right, so they would, they'd they view those soldiers as British and themselves as something else. It wouldn't be wasn't like a... yeah. Yeah, okay, right. So it's not it's definitely not civil war, clearly.
1: No. no. So, as we said, tea is the only duty that has not been abolished. In 1773, uh, Britain uh, those Britain has sort of a 12p duty on one on a pound of tea, but they lifted that in America and imp- and reduced it to just 3p per pound. Yeah, so America yeah. is paying less for tea yeah. than in Britain. However, the Sons of Liberty who are American radicals who want independence from Britain already, they fear that Americans might be persuaded to sell their liberty for some cheap tea.
2: Mm, yeah, see what I mean?
1: So they protest in Boston. Yeah. So about 40, 50 men disguised themselves as Mohawk Indians, boarded three British ships in the harbour and threw 343 chests of tea overboard, worth about £10,000. Pretty
2: crummy tea party.
1: Indeed, this course became known as the Boston Tea Party.
2: Why? It's no, there's no party aspect there.
1: There isn't really an awful lot of partying going just on. That
2: there was tea involved, and tea parties is also a word or phrase, quite possibly. <laughs> right. And it was in Boston.
1: Okay. Britain is not very happy about this, so they decided. It's a waste they of good tea. A very bad waste of good tea. We like our <laughs> yeah, tea. We do. To this day.
2: Yeah. Well, a lovely cup.
1: So Britain thinks right. We need to re-establish control before all of this rebellion and dissent just gets out of hand. So in 1774, um, they introduced various acts which have become known as the coercive or the intolerable acts. So tensions are escalating. There's a sense now that America is not American colonies, are not upset just about taxation, but actually rights and liberties. Mm. And this is what you're saying. There is now this sense of all the colonies are being sort of unified by this sort of common opposition, this common grievance.
2: Yeah. So there, these new acts just serving to strengthen the, mm. the American resolve.
1: So, in Philadelphia, there's a the, thing called the Continental Congress, where they, all the colonies get together, meet up, call for civil disobedience from American citizens against the British, demand that the 1774 Act be repealed, that no further legislation be imposed without their consent, and that there be no military presence in their colonies without their wishes.
2: It's quite a demand.
1: Quite a demand. And the rhetoric is really being stepped up. Benjamin Franklin said at this time, the attempts of a wicked administration to enslave America terms of the mm-hmm. 1774 act yeah George's response to all of this when he's speaking to parliament blows must decide whether they are to be subject to this country or independent well they did well they indeed did. but you see this is 1775 so already George is starting to think well if they're not going to get on board then we're going to make them get on board
2: blows must decide
1: i.e. oh blows punches punches, punches right or, um. or maybe more than punches <laughs> yes
2: more than a little clip
1: around the edge. gentleman's game
2: yeah now Benjamin Franklin, I really like him. He's a good egg. Um he's already he's the first one, name that I recognise here. He's well he's right the first one the I've mentioned. <laughs> okay, yeah, well that's true. He um but he's
1: in it right from the start. There's oh, all of them Jefferson, Washington, John Adams, right, okay. all these characters are they're,
2: they're the big right players.
1: Yeah. So seventeen seventy five we have a thing called the conciliatory proposition. Lord North is trying to find solutions, so in February He insists, still, that Parliament has legislative sovereignty and the right to tax, but colonial assemblies could pass their own financial legislation, provided that it gets um, agreement in Britain Mm. afterwards. And they could be responsible for their own civil lists and their own military expenditure. So it's almost like what we call dominion status. Yeah, yeah, but I mean,
2: if you start um, giving little bits here it's inevitable eventually it's going to be independent
1: so <laughs> says George III <laughs> no, really well no I'm just <laughs> oh I see right. <laughs> no independence for you blows will decide <laughs> so um, they're trying to make a peace they're trying to find a way through unfortunately in April uh, the British General uh, Gage uh, was attempting to suppress a rebellion it got heavily outnumbered however in hostile territory blood was spilt mm. between Americans and British troops so there's a hardening of opinion against compromise it's getting harder and harder to mm. find a peaceful solution yeah. out of this in response in july um america gives britain the olive branch petition where they affirm their loyalty to britain but call on george the 3rd to prevent the conflict so they're almost sort of saying you know we're loyal to you and britain but we want to be independent of parliament so they're willing to accept george as king oh right but kind of
2: that's interesting
1: mm. so there'll
2: be well, that is dominion. That's complete dominion. Yes, right? so it's
1: quite forward-thinking in terms of what we see as the Commonwealth now, but at the time, it's a bit too far And they're willing thinking.
2: to be allies and, and be...
1: Yeah, all that sort of thing. Yeah. However, it's undermined when they intercept a letter from uh, John Adams, mm. who's one of the Americans, um, who wrote to someone saying that war was inevitable and they should be building a navy to fight Britain already. Mm. So Britain says, well, it doesn't sound like you really mean it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> if you're talking about building up a war. So it is rejected. Yeah. George III um, states that the colonies are in a state of rebellion and urges Parliament to put a speedy end to these disorders by the most decisive exertions.
2: Oh, the rhetoric's ramping up. But what the, 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 um, the, when you say the Americans offer the uh, olive branch, yeah, um, that's uh, that's all coming from Philadelphia at this point. That's but well, there that's is an organisation.
1: Philadelphia is hosting all the representatives,
2: but the, and so that. So those representatives are starting to speak as one voice to the British and forming some yes. sort of parliament. Yes. Not parliament, but some sort of leadership.
1: Yes, an alliance and all these sorts right. of things. Right, OK. So there is a united front yeah. that they are presenting. Yeah. So, on the 4th of July in 1776, America, realising that the end has come to the end, issues its Declaration of Independence. I. they are an independent country separate from Britain.
2: Yeah completely cut off done
1: written by uh, thomas jefferson with input from john adams various others approved by congress on the fourth of july which is why that's their independence day the most famous passage relates to human rights and um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness it's
2: iconic isn't it it's, brilliant. it's-
1: that's what gets focused on now. At the time, if you read it, most of it is actually a rant about George III really? <laughs> being a, a nasty old tyrant <laughs> who misgoverned. Brilliant. So it's the eloquent bit, the rest of it, and he's a really nasty man. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, it's the American Revolution, mm. War of Independence. Early on, Britain has some successes, repulses an attempted invasion of Quebec. Uh, G- General Howe, who is cooped up in Boston, manages to escape and captures New York, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. However, there is a bit of a standoff, a bit of a stalemate. American forces led by General Washington, mm. you'll have heard of. I know him. Um, he avoided direct conflict early on because Britain had superior troops, both in terms of Australia experience, but also arms and ammunition. Washington troops severely under-resourced, mm. really struggling. So he avoids a big battle against them. And, However, late 1776, he wins a morale-boosting victory crossing the Delaware and uh, taking back New Jersey. So he's able to get a bit of a stalemate, and Britain is hampered by the long distance. Because it's a long way to America. It is. From Britain, a very long way. So it's quite hard to maintain (coughs) this conflict, particularly because they don't get the sort of organised assistance from the American loyalists that they'd hoped for. Right. So there are a lot of Americans that are still loyal to Britain. Big turning point comes the next year in 1777 at Saratoga. Britain had a strategy where it got two of its generals, uh, Burgoyne and Howe, who were going to go on these two campaigns and then link up, surround Washington troops and just win the day. Mm. Unfortunately, Burgoyne Mm. gets surrounded at Saratoga. He was hoping that Howe would come along and reinforce him. Unfortunately, they had a bit of a communications breakdown, so instead of coming to Saratoga, Howe just went and captured Philadelphia.
2: Still, it's pretty good. That's their capital, isn't
1: it? It was lovely, but it meant that Burgoyne had to surrender. With all his army, all his troops, he yeah. has to surrender to the Americans. It's a mm. big victory for America. Yeah. So it's a morale boost for them, but more importantly, it means that internationally, people think, hey, America could win this. Mm. So Britain's rivals in Europe, smarting from the Seven Years' War, see an opportunity to get their revenge.
2: Blasted French.
1: 1778, France uh, comes on side with America. 1779, Spain joins in. 1780, the Netherlands. Really? Netherlands as well it's pretty much impossible at this stage for Britain realistically to win mm. the war because they're now fighting against all these European powers as well as America but there, did um, did those European powers declare war on Britain or just declare
2: support for the States and fund them because there wasn't the
1: French send fleet over and right. caused huge problems right. um, to Britain George however refuses peace uh, which North is trying to sue for refuses to recognise independence they carry on mm. 1781 however Yorktown uh, The British General Cornwallis had his army in Yorktown but he's surrounded the French fleet blockade him so he's not able to get out by water and Washington's troops surround him by land so he's got this huge army at Yorktown but he can't get out by sea or by land and he's forced to surrender and that is pretty much all hope of Britain's army being able to win the war and really fight the war gone as Lord North says himself when he hears the news oh god it is all over yeah. Treaty of Paris in 1783 comes along. It's a bit of a delay because George still refused to accept that it's all over. He really doesn't want to give America up. Right, yeah. So he's insisting, well, but he's forced to give in. Peace treaty is signed, recognises the independence of the United States of America.
2: Well, I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge one there. That's massive blow for the British.
1: So, there's a bit of a political fallout from all of this. Mm. Uh, North resigns in 1782, fed up, worn down, and it's all been a bit of a disaster, really. Yeah. Rockingham um, came in to replace him, acknowledged American independence, but then died, rather unexpectedly, in (laughs) July. Thoughtless. Next man to come in is Shelburne, but powerful figures refuse to serve under him, so he has to resign. Mm. So someone else is going to have to take charge. Enter, stage right, one of the big characters of the period, Charles James Fox. Okay. Okay. He was a radical Whig MP, witty, enigmatic, openly loush, a reckless gambler, apparently had £200,000 of debts. Wow. And that's, you know, in the 18th century. A womanizer, particularly like duchesses. Brilliant (laughs) orator and a powerful personality.
2: Oh, yes. Your kind of guy. Yeah, he's my kind of guy.
1: He supported America against what he saw as British tyranny and apparently wore the buff and blue colours of Washington's army.
0: Oh, right. And would be very publicly
1: cheerful whenever American... Victories were in the news. Wow. He hated George III, and George III hated him.
2: How did he get in this position, then? He was just the last one
1: left? Well, no, he's a, he's a prominent uh, radical Whig MP, so, you know, a lot of people
2: oh, okay. support
1: him. For George III, Fox is the antithesis of everything he believes in. Mm. Fox is a, very much a party man, in terms of a Whig, yeah. but also a partying man. Yeah. Um, he blamed him for leading his son, the future George IV and Prince Regent, astray.
2: Right, and boy did he go astray!
1: Indeed, yeah. and he said of Fox, he cast off every principle of common honour and honesty as contemptible as he is odious.
2: Wow,
1: but the uh, feelings mutual. Yeah, Fox believed that George was a tyrant who was trying to undo the constitutional settlement of 1688. Because, as we said, George is trying to have more power for the crown yeah. than we'd seen under the previous. Hanover and
2: 1688 works. being the Glorious Revolution, wouldn't it? Yes. Right. which
1: has established Parliament's sort of dominance. Yeah. And Fox thinks that George is trying to turn the clock back. And indeed, he said of George, how intolerable that it should be in the power of one blockhead to do so much mischief.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you could. Yeah, he's right, though. I mean, George is really trying to, as, as we said, metal. The start clock, medal, yeah. Mm.
1: Fox also was not a fan of Lord Norse. Mm. Um, he said he was his uh, virulent enemy during the... 1770s he said he describes him as a lump of deformity and disease (laughs) of folly and wickedness of ignorance and temerity the blundering pilot who had brought the nation into its present difficulties lord chatham the king of prussia nay alexander the great never gained more in one campaign than the noble lord has lost
2: pilot that's genius
1: so it's a bit of a surprise when fox and north decide to team up and form a coalition
2: well, yeah, a little bit. Why? Why they not have? Don't have enough power? On their
1: they oppose Shelburne, who was the previous guy, and so they refuse to serve under him. And they decide, actually, we'd be able to get into power if we teamed up. Right. And not only do they decide to team up, but they demand that George point them, mm. and that they control who they point in their cabinet. Ooh. Which is a big assault yeah. on George's prerogatives. Um, he And he's outraged. He can't believe this. He's <laughs> appalled at this idea. He describes it as the most daring and unprincipled act that the annals of this kingdom ever produced. It is impossible, I would wish, such a government would last.
2: A bit like the coalition.
1: Ooh. Satire. And it's a really genuine crisis at this point. George III, very unpopular after losing America, yeah. hates the idea of this coalition. He seriously considers abdicating. Really? He actually drafts an address, saying his majesty with much sorrow finds he can be of no further utility to his native country, which drives him to the painful step of quitting it forever.
2: He sounds a bit like he just, like, um, throws tempers. He doesn't like mm. not having his own way and can't, doesn't really do diplomacy or doesn't do politics and ducking and weaving. He's just, my way or I'm going to quit and cry.
1: What he does instead is he plays politics.
2: Exactly. See, <laughs> as I said.
1: Fox introduces a thing called the East India Bill. Um, yeah. This is proposing to regulate the East India Company, which pretty much runs India
2: yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, independently. He wants it to be subject to a board of commissioners, so that the board will control the administration and the patronage in India, mm. so it be controlled centrally. This is not welcomed by everybody, particularly George III, because Indian patronage is of greater value than domestic. I, the East India Company, has kind of got control to more wealth than the crown
2: so the ports they're bringing more money than say, London. Yes, yeah,
1: so whoever controls the patronage of the east india company will have more wealth
2: right
1: than george third and fox surprisingly enough is rather um hoping to set himself up for life because he's the one that's going to appoint good the commissioners. <laughs> yes. george doesn't like the idea of this it passes in the house of commons but george makes it known to any of th- that any peer who votes for the bill will be considered an enemy of the crown
2: But what would be the repercussions of that? They can't lock their heads off anymore.
1: Well, no, but he's saying, you know, you won't get... Because he's still appointing them to positions, so he's saying you won't get court positions, you won't get patronage, all these sorts of things. And sure enough, the House of Lords vote against the bill. Mm. George III takes advantage of this, um, dismisses the Fox North Coalition, and appoints a new man as Prime Minister. And the new man is William Pitt the Younger. Uh He's the son of Pitt the Elder, um, Pitt the Elder, who dies sadly 17, uh, in 1783, he opposed the war in America. He believed it was impossible to conquer America, which proved true. Mm. And he collapsed speaking in the Lords in April 1783. And he was then taken out, and his son went with him. And apparently, his last words were to uh, Pitt the Younger, where he said, Leave your dying father and go to the defence of your country.
2: Oh, wow. Strong words. Great way to go.
1: Pitt uh, the Younger. Very much George's kind of guy. He's sort of a new Tory, we could describe him, but he's mm. essentially non-party. Right. So he believes national interest rather than party, which is what George has been looking for. Like his father, exceptional skills as an administrator. An observer noted that Mr Pitt conceives his sentences before he utters them, whereas Mr Fox throws himself into the middle of his and leaves it to God Almighty to get <laughs> him out again. But they say it's risky. He's the youngest Prime Minister we've ever had... 24 years old Crikey Moses That is A record you don't Imagine will probably Be broken um, Yeah
2: Absolutely sure You'd hope not Anyway Yeah.
1: What's more He doesn't really have Any parliamentary support At all
2: Is it it's, So he's just in this position Because he's Was once He, His father was Prime Minister
1: Yeah And he's George's man So George Sticks him in there Intervening In effect Against the Commons Wow Break. So, he manages to survive somehow, he's defeated consistently by Fox in various motions, including 1784 a motion of no confidence, which usually results in the government yes, falling. Yeah, but he's got the support of George, he's got the support of the House of Lords, even if he considers resigning, George isn't going to let him. Mm. Gradually, Fox's majorities start to fall and Pitt's standing starts to improve, to the extent that in 1784 they've had confidence to call a general election.
2: God, I mean, that is a bold chap, isn't it? I
1: yeah. George throws all his support behind Pitt the Younger, spends about £2.1 million on the <laughs> election campaign.
2: I don't imagine them spending any money on election campaigns. That's so oh, it's, on pamphleting or what?
1: Yeah, it's a very, um, very hard-fought election. Fox himself very narrowly wins his seat, retains his seat right. in Westminster because of the strong campaign put against him. Right. Um, helped out by uh, Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, who is famous now as the Duchess. Played by Keira Knightley. Oh, right. In a recent film. Uh, But Pitt, importantly, overall wins a majority of about 150. So it's completely turned around. Now, George, Pitt have got a strong majority in the Commons. They've got their way.
2: Okay, That's um, just a quick aside. So the idea of a king um, funding an election campaign is just too alien. (laughs) That's ridiculous. And spending that much money... On an electric, there must have been tiny anyway.
1: It's not very big, indeed. It's pretty small.
2: Wow, so he really, really wanted this chap to win.
1: And he really didn't want Fox in. Yeah, OK. So, 1780s, stability is back. Pitt is able to control a strong majority, control the commons, and George is able to take a back seat again. Because mm. he's got a man that can just do it all for yeah. him. There's economic recovery in this period, boosted by developments in agriculture and the Industrial Revolution, which we'll do more on. Yeah. Uh, next time. It's a period of exploration, James Cook and the uh, Pacific. Of course, 1788 the colonies established in New South Wales, i.e. Australia. Yeah. So lots of good stuff going on. However, things take a turn for the worst in 1788 with the madness of King George. Oh, here we go. Copyright. (laughs) 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 Alan Bennett. 5th of November, um, a dinner, royal family, George III suddenly started attacking his son future George IV that's
2: all normal Tried
1: to smash his head against a wall
2: less normal less
1: normal his eyes were bloodshot he was foaming at the mouth giving orders to people that had been long dead including Lord North who's dead by now he announced a lustful passion for the Countess of Pembroke who's one of the Queen's ladies and apparently he was talking constantly at one stage for 19 hours wow not as is often reported to a tree which he believed was the King of Prussia I think that's a spurious rumor.
2: <laughs> I, mean, but, I mean, that's as weird as some of the stuff that went on.
1: So, something's wrong and the doctors haven't got a clue yeah. what is the matter with him. Um, they try to draw out the evil humors through blisters on his body. So well, that sounds like it not work. Not so much. No. Uh, they bring in a man called Francis Willis, who specialised in lunatics, as it was called at the time. He thought the problem was over-excitement. That he wanted to keep George calm and if ever he was showing signs of unrest or being fidgety or ill-tempered he'd be strapped into an iron chair to hold him in place. A kind of seat straitjacket. Horrible. Really horrible. George III referred to it as his coronation chair rather poignantly.
2: Oh, dark.
1: Very, very dark. This causes a regency crisis because you can't really go on when your king's mad and incapacitated and he's still... An important person. Yeah. So Fox says, this can't go on. We need his son to become regent. Pitt doesn't like the idea of this because Fox and the potential prince regent are great buddies.
2: Oh, Another rival faction with the son.
1: So if the prince becomes regent, Pitt is going to get kicked out out. and Fox is going to be in. And Pitt... Has to delay, tries to delay, he gets very upset when at one point Fox insists that uh, the prince has the right to install himself as regent as soon as possible. And apparently Pitt, in an unusual show of emotion, slapped his thigh, his own thigh, not Fox's thigh, (laughs) gets up across the dispatch box and gives him a whack. And he says that he would unwig Fox. He'd pull his hair. Well, a little pun there. Oh, a wig. wig. Yeah. Uh, because he's effectively implying that the prince could install himself as king without recourse to parliament, when, of course, parliament yeah. chooses the monarch. So we have a yeah. lot of tit-for-tat, a lot of delaying tactics. Pitt delays for as long as possible, imposes various restrictions on the Regency Bill, but the bill is put forward and it is passed by the House of Commons.
2: But the king at this point... Although a um, bit loopy at times, was um, <laughs> with it enough to call it his coronation chair. He must have been aware that this was going on. I
1: mean, times. he has some lucid moments, but he's not in a position. Oh right, to so he's
2: really not. He can't eventually. just to sort of, wake up from his um,
1: lunacy at one point and then just say this. Manager, would you mind just being sane? got <laughs> some <pure? That's because laughs> important business. Can't
2: tell you really need to concentrate.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> the Pressure's on the phone. <laughs> However. News comes out, while the Lords are about to consider it, that George is on the mend.
2: Yeah. And come indeed on George.
1: he is. He loses weight, grows a beard, Charlotte's hair, his wife turns from brown to white, but in 1789 he recovers. Is it magic beard? Magic beard, indeed. Public rejoice on the news of his recovery. Apparently he went to recuperate afterwards in Weymouth and mm. went bathing, and apparently a royal band followed him into the sea and played God Save the King <laughs> <laughs> up to their knees in
2: Oh, right.
1: So, the Regency doesn't need to happen. Crisis averted.
2: Hey, Pitt's Modern
1: Pitts very happy. Mm. Modern diagnoses, it's generally attributed to a condition called uh, porphyria. So, you have um, symptoms like a rash, red urine, yeah, things like this. So, this is a condition which poisons the nervous system, including the brain. Right. So, it can affect your mental faculties. Yeah. Probably inherited from Mary Queen of Scots.
2: Really? How far back? That's quite far back. Very it?
1: far back. He doesn't always have the symptoms quite mm. to this extent. So it's thought that it was exacerbated through arsenic in his wig powder. Right. That may have made mm. him worse because he was obviously susceptible to attacks. Others, Why was he
2: putting arsenic in his wig?
1: Oh, they did that in Georgian days. of poisons. they got up to. <laughs> lots of people at the time, though, thought that it was because he had a rather um, abstemious diet and, indeed, he was faithful to his wife.
2: That, that is going to cause you trouble. So they
1: thought, because she was a bit plain, probably was driven mad by the fact that he wasn't getting to have his fun with more <laughs> beautiful ladies. Imagine a modern ladies.
2: family planet clearly offering <laughs> that advice.
1: So he's recovered. Okay. And that's all great. Everything is calm and peaceful mm. and happy. Mm. Except, of course, that in 1789 we have the defining event of the era, probably the defining event for the next 100 years, mm. the French Revolution.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, This changes everything So we're going to go into this in a little bit of detail mm. Background to this, in France the king Is Louis Sixteenth, the house of Bourbon He's an absolute monarch in theory Though there's rather stifling bureaucracy Means that nothing much is being done France is suffering economic strife, they've had bad harvests They've got debt from the Seven Years' War And now the American Revolution, because they got involved What's more, Louis's wife, Marie Antoinette Is seen as a profligate, promiscuous Austrian Overseeing a wasteful court
2: mm.
1: There's unpopularity going on in may 1789 the failure to resolve the economic crisis leads to a meeting of I think called the estats general so this is three assemblies made up of the nobles the clergy and everybody else come okay. together to try and solve the problem however lots of tensions there so in june the third estate the people declare themselves a national assembly of the people and they're going to sort it all out themselves Louis tried to stop the meeting at the Salle des Atats, which is where they usually met, so they relocated to an indoor real tennis court. As you do? As you do, where they made a tennis court oath. They agreed not to separate until France had a constitution. Yeah. Paris gets overtaken by rioting, and on the 14th of July, insurgents storm the Bastille.
2: Yeah, so is that the first major event of the...
1: first major event. This is a sort of French fortress. It doesn't hold a lot of prisoners, but it's got a lot of weapons and ammunition, which is why... Is it more its
2: significance, because there's only six
1: prisoners? Yeah, it's its significance as this sort of royal bastion of power.
2: Right, Okay.
1: So, in uh, August, the National Assembly abolishes feudalism, abolishes privileges for the nobles and the clergy, and on 26th of August, issues the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, a sort of Statement of Principles.
2: Is this, do they take that as a constitution? Or they it's be?
1: not yet a legal constitution, right. it's just general principles at the moment. However, they vote, a, uh, they vote to have one assembly of the people, in which Louis will just be a sort of figurehead monarch who has what's called a suspensive veto, hmm. i.e. he can delay things, but he can't actually stop them happening. Right. Then, in October, the 5th of, uh, 5th of October, there is a march on Versailles. Initially, lots of women gather in Parisian markets to have various demands, um heard from officials, so they want the economic problems to be solved, they want the National Assembly to be recognised, they want the Royal Family to come to Paris and when this doesn't happen they and a mob sort of all gather together and about 7,000 people march on Versailles where Louis XVI Marie, and Marie Antoinette are cooped up they're there with their guns and their muskets and all sorts of things, baying outside Moderate Minister Lafayette persuades Louis to go out and talk to them and he's very relieved when they all start cheer- cheering Vive la loi! he's the king he's yeah, um, the king yeah. but um, then it's not enough just to wave to them so Louis agrees to move the royal family back to Paris and recognises the National Assembly
2: hmm. so that calms things we can
1: that calms things so in Britain obviously news trickles over about this hmm. and everyone thinks wow this is brilliant because at this stage they think that in effect France is now setting up a constitutional monarchy so they think France has just caught up to where Britain was in 1688 yeah, yeah. So everyone's really positive about this. Fox inevitably describes it one, as one of the most glorious events in the history of mankind. Mm-hmm. But other people love it as well. The Lakeland poets, uh, Wordsworth said that human nature seeming born again. And Southey said that old things seemed passing away and nothing was dreamt of but the regeneration of the human race. So people really see it as this inspiring reform. Yeah. But is the establishment like it as well. George III thinks that France is basically reaping what it sowed for supporting America in the war. (laughs) Still (laughs) bitter. Still quite bitter. And Pitt thinks it's good because it means that France is going to be laid low for quite a while and won't be interfering in European world affairs anymore. It's all good news. However, there's one man who's not too pleased about it. Edmund Burke. He was a radical Whig MP. He had supported the American Revolution, was friends with Fox. But in 1790, he wrote a reflection on the revolution in France. And he thought that it was a cold rationalism over tradition and history and sort of more organic human qualities. He didn't like the fact that in France they were using reason to ride roughshod over all these years of development to just write up these new constitutions and these new rules, Mm. completely starting from scratch. He thinks that you should preserve and improve rather than destroy what's gone before.
2: uh, Evolution rather than revolution. Exactly.
1: Yeah. However... Not everybody agrees with him, particularly a radical thinker called Thomas Paine. Yeah. He'd come to fame initially and playing an important role in the American Revolution. He wrote a pamphlet called Common Sense, which helped provide an expression of sort of American opposition to the king ruling. But he was shocked at the fact that Burke had opposed this, given that he'd previously been supportive of revolution. So he wrote a thing called The Rights of Man. And in this, he argues for the rule of reason. He says wisdom shouldn't be inherited, and, well, it can't be inherited – and thus, neither should aristocracy or monarchy.
2: Yeah.
1: It should be meritocracy rather than just things being passed down.
2: You wouldn't trust your dentist just because his dad was a dentist.
1: Exactly. And every generation should be free to choose for itself how it should be ruled. You shouldn't be subject to the past, i.e. sixteen eighty eight constitution for Britain. Shouldn't rule forever just because they did it then. Yeah. We should be free to do our anything. Yeah. So we see lots of radical debate and reform going on in Britain. But then things turn a little in France. 17th of February, 1792, Pitt makes one of those sort of famous, um, incredibly bad prophecies. So he says to Parliament, there never was a time in the history of this country when, from the situation of Europe, we might more reasonably expect 15 years of peace than we may at the present moment.
2: Oh, what a Michael Fish moment.
1: A few months later, everything goes a little bit <laughs> to pot. They try in France to have a constitutional monarchy, but Louis attempts to escape and get out and try and you know rule for himself. But he gets captured at Varennes brought back to Paris and the crowd watching him come back are ominously silent. He's forced to sign a new constitution where he's really just a figurehead monarchy. And the assembly is now divided between three different groups. We've got the Fouillon who are sort of constitutional monarchists. We've got the Girondists who are sort of moderate Republicans. And then we've got the Jacobins who are the radical Republicans. Mm. And... The Republic isn't working as a result. We've got these divisions. In 1792, um, Tuileries Palace, where Louis and the royal family is, gets attacked by a mob. His Swiss guards are massacred. The royals get imprisoned. Uh, the monarchy is then abolished. And a republic is
2: Wait, Where was this? That, that, that's rather crept up on me. What, um, so this is
1: 1792. It's all happening. So this is August, September. A Jacobin that comes to prominence at this point, Maximilian Robespierre.
2: Yes, yeah.
1: Now he ironically was opposed to the death penalty he didn't think it was good as inhuman
2: well he loved it
1: well <laughs> but he saw louis as a permanent threat to liberty and said that with regret i pronounce this fatal truth louis must die so that the nation may live and as a result on the 21st of january 1793 louis the 16th was executed by the guillotine followed by his wife marie antoinette mm. things get rather worse robespierre decides that actually it was quite fun the <laughs> whole guillotine thing so he institutes the reign of terror yeah 1793 to 94 takes control of a thing called the committee of public safety and institutes terror as a legal policy in France what as he describes it himself the despotism of liberty against tyranny so he's saying the only way to get security and stability in France is to kill off all our enemies it's the only way that we're going to get liberty He changed the tune not he if we have tyranny about sixteen thousand probably executed by guillotine; another forty thousand summarily executed. Wow! So, yes,
2: that's that's horrible. I it's mean, that, very, very horrible.
1: Really brutal, awful period. So there is a reaction in yeah. Europe. Seventeen ninety-two. In April, France declared war on Austria. In May, Catherine of the Great brings Russia mm-hmm. into the fray. Prussia. Uh, join in in July and then November France call on the peoples of all Europe to rise up against their oppressive leaders and offer support in return i.e. France is inciting everybody else to rebel yeah. and then 1st of February 1793 France declares war on Britain why? you know <laughs> <laughs> it's the done thing it was inevitable after the execution of Louis the sixteenth. there was going to be war Britain they're baying for war where they've got to get revenge got to sort out get the, the French monarchy back right France, obviously hates Britain as its Why rival and a monarchy. Just because
2: just they're used to dealing with monarchs. Well, you know, because it's is... such a
1: threat to the established order oh, the, things. Oh, the,
2: that they could incite the same thing. Exactly. Right.
1: So there's the First Coalition. Prussia, Austria, Britain, the Netherlands, Russia and Spain team up to fight France. Mm. Pitt focuses on the Empire and the seas, while subsidising the Allies in Europe. A bit of success, Admiral Howe wins naval victory in the glorious 1st of June in 1794 otherwise, limited success in the West Indies, and by 1797, a succession of French victories in mainland Europe means that Britain's the only one left right. in the coalition. Yeah. Standing alone. So there is a reaction in Britain. They're terrified by this, and now no longer everybody's all happy about the revolution and reforms. Suddenly, reform is bad. Mm. So Pitt suspends a habeas corpus in 1793. People advocating political reform at this stage are imprisoned or get targeted by mobs and the Whig parties are split between radicals who are still supported revolution and conservatives who think actually reform maybe not bad idea There's, bad time for it that is yeah, extremely suspending
2: the heaviest corpus and and people who want reform are banged up without yeah. trial this is because they're
1: seen as you know potential radicals potential revolutionaries now
2: that's enough to incite a revolution in itself.
1: Well, arguably. Fox in this period is increasingly isolated and vilified in sort of cartoons like Gilray because he still seems a very suspicious figure, if not a traitor, by right. many people. Uh, and George III, in contrast, becomes incredibly popular. He's a figure now of stability and calm. And tradition and, yeah. and tradition and history and all these sorts of things. Having said that, it is a dodgy period. There's an upsurge in republicanism, naval mutinies at Spidhead and North, so, you know, it's. Mm. A lot of tension in Britain. And indeed in Ireland. Uh They're very inspired by all of this stuff going on. There's been a Protestant ascendancy ruling the Catholic majority in Ireland for a very long time now. So Catholics can vote and marry Protestants but they can't sit in Parliament. So they're not represented. And they have very limited rights. And they're inspired by the French Revolution. They like the progressive thinking and they like the idea of independence. So, Wolf Tone... Process man. He founds the Society of the United Irishmen in 1791. And this is aimed at democratic reform, Catholic emancipation and Irish independence. So it's an organisation that incorporates Protestant and Catholic for a united Ireland against Britain. Right, OK, yeah. Um, spreads throughout Ireland. By 1797, there's something like 10,000 people are members and they try to link with Catholic groups such as this agrarian resistance group called the Defenders. 1796. Wolfe Tone goes off to France, tries to gain their support to help them get independence. And sure enough, he comes back with a 15,000-strong invasion force.
2: French troops land in Ireland.
1: Threat. Well, unfortunately for them, they come over, elude the Royal Navy, get round to Bantry Bay in Ireland, but storms and naval errors meant that they weren't able to land. And Britain has. Basically, no troops in Ireland at this stage. As Tone himself said, England has had its luckiest escape since the Armada. Mm. If they'd landed, almost certainly Ireland would have secured its Uh. independence. But with French troops in Ireland. Yeah. Which, obviously, is a bit concerning for Britain. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Britain cracked down. 1798 reorganises its Irish forces and arrests many of the leading figures. But, nevertheless, there is a rebellion. May to June, um, Wexford and, and um, Ulster rise up, sadly for them, all defeated. September, the French land, declare a republic in Connaught, uh, but are then defeated at Callanmook. And then Wolfe Tone is captured in another failed French landing, and this time he gets executed.
2: So there are battles, pitched battles, British versus French, in Ireland.
1: Yeah, not, yeah, it's not a, as not as a lot of French troops, and it's mainly Irish. Indeed, something like 10,000 probably were killed. In the rebellion as a result okay. of this. However, Pitt recognises that it can't go on like this anymore. The Protestant ascendancy is not going to work. So we have in 1800 an act of union between Britain and Ireland. Hence the, now the union flag. Yes, yeah, so we have the united kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. This idea is to bring Ireland on side. We're going to be friends. We're going to be united. And so, yes, yeah, so George is now king of Britain and Ireland. He relinquishes his claim at last to be the king of France.
2: Oh, at this point, so this
1: 1808. Point. 18, well, 1801, that he actually does it.
2: Wow.
1: However, one thing that Pitt also wanted was to get Catholic emancipation. He thought, it's no good just having an of union, they've got to buy into this. Yeah. So they've got to actually w- be involved. So he wants them to be able to sit in Parliament. Unfortunately, when he tries in 1801, George III says no.
2: Why?
1: Previous monarchs have been very flexible to repealing all these acts against Catholics, but George is different. He thinks that he'd be breaking his coronation oath to ups, um, uphold the Church of England. So he mm. just refuses to accept it at all. Mm. And as a result, Pitt resigns as Prime oh, Minister.
2: Yeah. He was about his only friend, wasn't he? Nearly
1: 20 years, and Pitt resigns. And the Act of Union is not as successful as it might have been. Mm-hmm. This isn't a good time for him to resign because things are developing again in France. Robespierre took pretty much total control in France. He's the last man, really, of the 1789 revolution still standing. Yeah. He's still with liberty. But he loses support when he permits executions merely on suspicion without even he's recourse he's to trial.
2: To, he's just gone completely out of control, this guy.
1: There's an attempted assassination on him. And at this point he's like, yeah, we probably should just kill anybody that seems a bit shifty.
2: Wow, what a tyrant.
1: That's not popular. No. So forces turn against him, he's going to be arrested, shoots himself, only manages to shatter his jaw, so he himself is executed by the guillotine without a trial in 1795.
2: They need to get a handle on the situation, it's horrible.
1: They establish a thing called the Directory. So they have a new constitution passed with two houses, and executive power lies with these sort of five directors. Previously we'd have universal male suffrage, it's now limited again on property, so it's a bit more moderate, a bit more Mm. backed to how it was, Uh, but it's again very unpopular and facing rebellion. Now Burke, as if he hasn't done enough, because he'd been saying it's all going to go badly wrong, you need to have tradition, all these sorts of things, he prophesied to the French in the Reflections that some popular general would arise to become the master of your whole republic. Really? Mm.
2: When did he say that?
1: This is in 1790.
2: Right, yeah.
1: Good few years ahead. And of course, a popular general does arise and does become the master of the whole republic, Napoleon Bonaparte.
2: Yes, the man.
1: The yes. man. The legend. Born on Corsica, and apparently he had a Corsican accent for a while and very bad spelling, for which he got mocked, <laughs> considered applying for Royal Navy at one stage, apparently in his early years, but became an artillery officer for France. Won praise for his role in the Siege of Toulon in 1793, early in the French Revolutionary Wars, and he was admired by Robespierre. Right. so he progresses up through the ranks 1797 he refused orders to march on rome and kick out the pope because the directory were atheists instead decided to capture venice not venice captured vienna
2: what hang on how powerful so they're already thinking about marching in rome that they must have so they so france is, is secure enough that it's expanding not just sorting itself out internally
1: oh yes it, it wars are going very very well it's Defeating everybody.
2: Wow. All over okay. the place.
1: Um, so he captures Vienna, ending 1,100 years of independence. Yeah. That city. And in 1799, not going well with the directory, he's in conflict with them. He comes back, leads a successful coup, and becomes first consul in France. In effect, top dog. Right. So we now have the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah and it takes on a new level. Napoleon had planned initially to weaken Britain by focusing on its commerce, so he'd occupied Malta and Egypt, but when Nelson won a victory at the Battle of the Nile in 1798, Britain was able to get control of the Mediterranean again. Mm. So then we have the second coalition, Britain, Austria, Russia and France against France in 1800, but Napoleon once again smashes Austria, smashes Russia, 1801, it's all on Britain again. Thankfully, however... Britain and France are all a little bit tired from all of this war mm. so in 1801 we have the Treaty of Amiens where there's a sort of uneasy truce mm. both agree to give some of their territories back neither side actually does they're just calming having a breather before war starts off again and then it does 1803 Britain declares war on France
2: on what grounds just that it, it, they all knew that it was going to kick off again they just so looked at,
1: at their the watches and go yeah about no, yeah. now probably. look over there bang <laughs> Napoleon making plans for an invasion. 1804 he gathers about 100,000 men and 2,000 transports off Boulogne mm. ready for invasion. However, 1805 um, Nelson defeats uh, a French fleet at Trafalgar led by Villeneuve.
2: Ah, the French uh, admiral was Villeneuve. Probably. Villeneuve.
1: Yeah. So French are defeated at the Battle of Trafalgar, the Royal Navy is supreme. 1805 1805 it? Nelson dies a hero's death on the HMS Victory. Um but, nevertheless, Navy Supreme, there's no way that Napoleon's going to be able to invade Britain.
2: So now we've got control of the sea, it's all about the land, trying to sort Europe
1: out. So we had then a third coalition, they all try again. Britain, Austria, Russia and Sweden this time. But 1805 to 1807, France, lots and lots of victories, and it's all on Britain.
2: Mm. And so Napoleon's mm-hmm. emperor at this point, he's, he's top dog, he's top dog. destroying Europe. He's, the map looks very, very French.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's not conquering all these countries, so it's not like Hitler when he's actually expanding everywhere, but he's very much in control, and he's expanding into certain countries, Italy, for example, Mm. things like this. Um, And it's a difficult period, 1806, Pitt and Fox both die.
2: Uh, Pitt was quite young, wasn't he? He Well, he was in power for 20 years. Yeah, so he's in his 40s, still
1: fairly young. So, you know, we've lost Nelson, we've lost Pitt, we've lost Fox. Yeah, big names. A lot of big names. 1808, French troops invade Portugal, and Napoleon's brother Joseph is made the king of Spain.
2: Ah, so now we are talking... uh, Now we're talking real expansion.
1: So, uh, Britain sends 15,000 troops in initially, rises to 60,000 by 1810. Try to stir peasant nationalism against Napoleon. And uh, Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, fights a very long, hard campaign, ultimately successful. 1812, marches into Madrid. That's impressive, but it's not really the big thing in the Napoleonic Wars. The thing which absolutely turns the tide is Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812. Fools. As you know from "Rescue," never invade Russia. No. Napoleon marches over half a million troops into Russia.
2: Half a million?
1: Over half a million.
2: That's larger than the d invasion force, isn't it? Or oh, mu- yeah, it's much, ridiculous. much
1: bigger. Huge force. He plans total dominance of Europe, so if he conquers Russia... Besides having this huge territory... Asia, most of Asia. Them. He's going to be able to block off Britain's eastern supply lines, like to India and places yeah. like this. So that would really have a massive effect on Britain. By September of 1812, you've got to the gates of Moscow. Yeah. Russia has basically just been in constant retreat at this point, just going back and back and back, not fighting. But they stand their ground just outside Moscow at the Battle of Borodino. Apparently something like 250,000 soldiers are involved in this battle. Huge, huge conflict, about 70,000 casualties. France captured the field, but it's a rather pyrrhic victory. They don't destroy the Russians, they lose a lot of men who they can't replace from at this distance. Yeah. And what's more, when they enter Moscow, they find the city is burning. It's October now, it's getting cold. Napoleon orders a retreat.
2: That's always the Russian way, isn't it? They, they retreat to just to the Urals. Wait for the wind to kick in and then drive yeah. back again. Get to
1: the very, very brink of and all... They, oh, OK, of let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> so, Napoleon is in retreat. Russian tatches of scorched earth, hard winter, niggling raids on the exposed bits of the French army have a devastating effect. It's impossible to supply the troops. All the horses die or get eaten. They have to march on foot. The whole army marches on foot. Napoleon hears about a uh, potential coup in France, so he rushes off in a sleigh ahead of everybody else and only 22,000 French troops return from half a million so they lose about half a million about 100,000 get captured but yes the rest
2: wonder what happened to them
1: I don't imagine the outlook was (laughs) particularly good oh dear something like sort of 5, 6, 7 million people in all die mostly peasants as a result of the warfare and impact on the land but huge numbers in this period
2: because in the Second World War, there was 25 or 20 million Russians About 20 died. million
1: Russians, yeah.
2: But that's... But, that, I mean, the population was so much bigger, so that's, that's equivalent. It's huge. Wow.
1: The impact of all of this, of course, is that France has taken a rather big knock. Yeah. So, in 1814, Napoleon, incredibly, still able to raise huge armies, raises another 400,000 troops and uh, wins a victory at Dresden. But he is defeated at, I think, called the Battle of the Nations. So, Treaty of Chamon in 1814, Britain, Austria, Prussia, and Russia form the Grand Alliance. They now see that, actually, they can work together and they can defeat Napoleon in battle.
2: Enough practice.
1: Yes. So, within months, the Allies enter Paris and Napoleon was forced to abdicate by senior officers, exiled to Elba, and Louis Eighteenth is restored to be the King I've of France. The Restoration. The Restoration hmm. in France. Victory.
2: Well, yes, but doesn't he come back?
1: Yes, he does. He escapes from exile (laughs) and returns to France. (laughs) Um, A 5th Regiment um, in France is sent to meet him and arrest him. And apparently he walked up to them alone and said, Here I am. Kill your emperor if you wish. And they went, Hail the emperor! Oh, dear. And Napoleon is back. So, Wellington faces off with Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Sees off successive attacks... From Napoleon until von Blucher, the Prussian general makes a decisive intervention, brings along his army. Napoleon can't fight too; he's defeated once more.
2: So, I mean, we all know that um, about um, Waterloo, but it actually, the, we couldn't have done it without a bit of Prussian help.
1: No, so we we'll do Waterloo more, and, and next Bassunus, time, Bathymus. Yeah. But yes, there's no way that we would have won, uh, won Waterloo without Prussian intervention. But it was an alliance. So what? Wellington was expecting right. the Prussians to yeah. come along. Thank Probably you. a certain amount of trepidation as he waited, <laughs> but nevertheless,
2: a little bit sooner would have been nicer. It then. was yeah. part of the plan. Okay.
1: So Napoleon is exiled to Saint Helena, but this time there's no return, and he dies in 1821. Unfortunately, George doesn't really know about this.
2: <laughs> oh, he hasn't got Ma- mad again. He, he has relapses. And they were shaved.
1: <laughs> shaved again. Oh, no oh, a spot. Later attacks in 1801 and 1804, his behavior remained a bit erratic, particularly around women. He'd make sort of lusty remarks and all these sorts of things. Relationship with his wife broke down. Charlotte took to travelling in a separate carriage, locked her bedroom door against him, wouldn't go to bed um, until he'd gone to bed. She'd stick with her ladies because she was worried about him being violent about what he'd do. Oh, that's horrible. That broken down. 1810, he's enjoying celebrations of his golden jubilee. Yeah. 50 years on the throne. Um, but death of his favourite and youngest daughter, Amelia, left him devastated, and he went into another decline. First people thought it was temporary, just because of death of his daughter, but this time it was permanent. Oh. So in 1811 there was the Regency Act, which made his son the Prince Regent, and he remained as such for the rest of the reign.
2: How long was he um, lucid lo- for between the relapse?
1: Um, well, I mean, that's 1789 to 1810.
2: Oh, right, OK. So quite perception,
1: the perception of him is mad all the time. Was yeah. Actually, it's, for most of the period, he's not mad at all.
2: But that, that first bout was intense for a couple of years, was it? No,
1: 1788 eighty nine, so it was a few months, oh, less right. than a year. And then this last one lasted? But then this last one lasts.
2: For the, for the, how long was the end of Well, period?
1: we'll go for the other little things. Yeah. One other thing we missed, there's no other way to fit this in, but we do have to fit this in. The last Prime Minister appointed by George III um, in 1810 was Spencer Percival. Who's famous for nothing yeah. except being the only British Prime Minister to have been assassinated. That's right,
2: that's where, the, yeah. Eleventh
1: of May 1812, man John Bellingham shot him in the chest at point-blank range. This is another man who was a bit mad. and he wanted a public hearing for some grievances he, grievances he had after being arrested in Russia and that he hadn't had enough support in Britain. And after trying various petitions and getting nowhere, he thought that the best thing to do would be to kill the Prime Minister so then when it went to trial, they'd, he'd be able to tell them all about it.
2: And then we banged up something else.
1: Oh, executed. Well, and they just say, "Oh, yes, that's fair enough." And then hang compensation, on. as it was, yes, he was assassina- uh, assassinated. He was executed a week later. So Spencer Percival, only prime minister to have been assassinated.
2: The Rex fact to end on there.
1: But as we said, George doesn't know about this. He never recovers, and he has a rather sad end in Windsor Castle, where he's sort of pretty much locked up in his apartment, nice. but yeah. Yeah. away from the public. Increasingly blind, deaf. Suffering from rheumatism and dementia, held imaginary parades, so he'd sort of go along inspecting armies that weren't there, had conversations with people long dead, again, particularly Lord North. He didn't know that from 1814 he was now the King of Hanover, because it got upgraded to be uh, oh, right. a kingdom. He didn't know that from 1818 he was a widower, because his wife Charlotte died. He, and he didn't know. He didn't know. And apparently, one of the only pleasures he still had at this point was bashing on his harpsichord to handle pieces
2: mm.
1: um he left handle too no, he loved oh, as well they all left handle yeah. so he'd be bashing at the keys struggling to yeah. listen to it and then finally in 1820 so you know almost 10 years of this 1820 and on the 29th of january he dies aged 81 years old but that was the uh the life and reign of george the third very eventful
2: yeah absolutely i mean that's that's you couldn't, couldn't miss out the American Wars. Nope. Mer- uh, French Revolution. Yep. Napoleonic Wars. Yep. And before, the Seven Years' War, we focused on lots, and the end of that.
1: Yeah, and, and, and Fox, the madness. Yeah. And Jeez. we still haven't really done much on the battles or the Industrial Revolution and relationship with the Prince Regent. Lots and lots of stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to factor him next. Yeah. But that was the background to keep in mind when we do the factoring. Um, so it, it is a big, epic... Double bill, double album, certainly is. So that's it for the biography. Next time we will review George the Third.
2: And in the meantime, we're going to celebrate the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. We
1: are indeed. And so uh, well done to Elizabeth the Second. We look forward to <laughs> seeing you in a <laughs> in a few months' time. time yeah, yeah, I presume we'll be invited for the uh it, so live special in Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Uh, so until next time, when we review George the Third. Goodbye. Goodbye.